Yep, going for it. Sometimes you just got to send it, you know. So speaking of sending it, we're finishing our Job series tonight. And so if you guys want to open in your Bibles to Job chapter 38, we're going to be talking about God's response. And now I'm going to walk you through, since we were doing something different last week, and this is our conclusion, I'm going to walk you through just what we've got in this book. So at the beginning of the book, God and Satan have a conversation and they make a bet that ultimately results in Satan ruining Job's life, killing all of his kids, destroying all of his possessions, giving him a sickness, and of course, cherry on top, leaving his, his wife alive. And so, what was it? Leaving his wife alive. Yeah, Satan had permission to do the absolute worst thing possible, and Job's <laughs> wife dying was not part of that. So he got someone giving him actively bad advice, and that was the cherry on top of his suffering, which, hey, Job's wife was suffering too, but still. So Job's got all the bad things going on in his life. And we talked about how we're functioning with dramatic irony, where we know that Job is not suffering because he sinned, but Job and his friends didn't get to see behind that curtain. And so Job and his friends have a conversation for 28 chapters where all of Job's friends are saying, you sinned. That's the only reason you could be suffering like this. And Job is saying, I didn't sin though. And they said, Job, you're not fooling us. You obviously sin because only sinners suffer like this. And then Job gets more and more rash in his conversation. And he keeps saying, if only I could have my day in court before God, he must have let something slip. And so at the end of the book, you have Elihu, who looks at Job's friends and says, you're accusing Job of wrong, but you can't answer him a word. And then he looks at Job and he says, Job, you're justifying yourself instead of justifying God. And we talked last time about how Elihu is God's hype man, where he's talking about how epic God's voice is and how it thunders. And then God comes in in the whirlwind. So tonight we're going through Job 38 to 42, which is God's response to Job. At the end of all of it, God actually speaks to Job. And this is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible, 38 to 42, because it's essentially three chapters of God bragging. And those are some of my favorite parts of the Bible and total like honest portion. I cry almost every time I read this chapter. And of course, like manly tears that sound, that smell like oak and cause hair to sprout on your chest, the kind of tears. But like, I cry every time I read it. It's just amazing. And I personally enjoy this very much. And I believe that Job is better read than it is taught. And so tonight, I'm not going to give you a typical lesson. I'm going to read this with you. I want to let you see Job through my eyes. And so we're going to go through it piece by piece. And I'm just going to give you commentary as we go. So you're definitely going to need your Bibles tonight to follow along. But we're going to see how does God respond to Job. So the first thing it says in verse 1 of 38, And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. First thing you notice, God responds to Job. If God actively involves himself in a conversation where Job is saying, man, where is God? Does God see me? Does God hear me? The fact that God responds, what does that mean that God was doing the entire previous conversation? Yes. Listening. He was listening. The entire time that conversation is happening where Job is feeling unseen and unheard, God was listening the entire time and then he responds. And there's something encouraging about that on its own, that even when you're suffering, God's with you. And we've talked about that in Ruth. We've talked about that in the New Testament. We've talked about that even in the Sermon on the Mount. God always sees you. And so God saw Job. But in this case, God's not coming to comfort Job. God's actually coming to rebuke Job, just like Elihu did. And he says in verse 2, Who is this 
that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And that's just dripping with sarcasm. Because what is it that God needs Job to teach him? And that was what we said in Elihu. That's what Justin said when he was going through the third cycle. He says, the God who made the stars and gives source to their heat and light, that's the one that you want to call to task. God shows up. And that's terrifying. And so Job is naturally shaking in his boots, but we get to that later. But God says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And in verse 4, he starts ripping into Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. Was Job there for that? And here's the other one. Who did those things? God God did. So God's saying, hey, Job, where were you when I was doing these things? Which one thing that's worth noting in this section, God is speaking in poetry. God is speaking in poetry, just like all of the other people in this book have been speaking in poetry up to this point. And since God is speaking, yes? Um, I'm sorry, lost where we were. It's uh, chapter 38, Job 38. No, like what, is it five? In verse 4. In verse 4. So one thing that's helpful is that God is speaking about creation in poetic terms. And so while we're here, this is not the main point, but we would be remiss if we didn't address it. So one of the things that people will often talk about with Genesis is, oh, Genesis is poetry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to play a quick game. And this is a game I I like to call, try to find the poetry. (laughs) And we're going to take Genesis chapter 1... And we're going to stand it right next to Job 38, where God talks about the exact same events. Let's see if we can find the poetry. Job 38, 4 through 11. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and, th- and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Now let's compare the poetry to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the waters. And God said, further down, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, I'm sure that this is not difficult, But if you had to hazard a guess, which one of those is poetry and which one of those is history? Yeah, Grayson. Job Job is poetry and Genesis is history. In Job, he's making use of metaphor. He's using some anthropomorphism. He's referring to the oceans as a baby. 
And he's doing it quite artfully, by the way. Like, this is actually really good poetry. I, I love this did section. Yeah. Yeah, of course God invented poetry. God invented everything. So, no human can conceive of something that God didn't come up with first. But one of these is poetry, and one of these is clearly not. So, Genesis is history, Job is poetry. That's got nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but it's something that's worth addressing while we're here. So, very clear difference between the two. But God looks at Job, and the first thing that he has to say to Job is, Job, you can't do my job. You're calling me to task, and you're saying, man, God must have missed something. Are you God? Do you know the things that I know? Can you do the things that I can do? And yet you're going to say that I must have made a mistake? You're not my judge. I'm your judge. And God shows up to Job, and he starts with that. He starts with saying, I'm the creator. You're the creature. And he goes on. He says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. And so God, again, he's not even just saying, can you create what I've created? Do you know what I know? But he says, hey, nature itself responds to me. I command the morning. If you look at the sun and you ask it to set a few hours later, will it do it? No, it's not even going to hear your voice. But do you know what happens to the sun when God tells it to stand still? It does it. God commands creation. God has authority unlike what we have. And so we're going to skip ahead a little bit. But the first thing is God and us are on a different level. Isaiah says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and God's ways are beyond our ways. We aren't the same. And so we're going to go down a little bit further to get to something else. But in 25, we're going to go down to verse 25. There's something else that God starts talking about. He says, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Which, first of all, what a cool way to describe, like, directing rain and thunderbolts. God's a really good poet, and I just think that that's an important side note. So, um, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Here's why that's significant. Job is saying, man, God must have let something slip. God must have missed my case. There must be something that he's seen wrong because I'm suffering when I'm not supposed to be. And one of the things that God says is, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm God and you're not. But he says, Job, I see the desolate piece of land where no one lives, where no animal lives, And I make sure it gets its water. I see the things that no one else sees. I care about the things that no one else cares about. Not only do I provide for people, I provide for lifeless dirt that no one else even knows exist. Something that we might say today is that God sees the surface of every single planet whose light has never reached our solar system. The things on the furthest reaches of the universe that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't enjoy, God sees it and God takes care of it. 
And so God looks at Job and he's saying, you think that I missed something in your case. I don't miss anything. There is no part of creation that God doesn't see. There's no part of creation that God doesn't care for. And does God care about some random plot of dirt in an empty desert more than he cares about one of his children? And God essentially slides in there, Job, you think I missed you? I didn't. And if my responding to your conversation wasn't enough to tell you that, I water dirt that no one sees. But he doesn't just talk about watering dirt. In your handout, I have it split up in God and the inanimate creation. Now we're going to talk about God and animals. And so he goes on. And in verse 39, we're going to skip some other stuff. In verse 39, he says, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey or when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God says, I watch after lions. I watch after birds, little young ravens. When they cry to their mother, I hear their voice and I make sure they get their food. In the New Testament, Jesus says, look at the sparrows. God cares for them. And are you not worth much more than many sparrows? That's essentially the implicit argument that God's making to Job as well. I care for the animals. Animals have no forethought. They don't store in barns. At least birds don't. And yet I make sure that they catch their prey. But here's the other thing. The picture is bigger than you realize. A lot of times we look at our life and we think that our life is all there is. We don't think beyond ourselves. We don't think about what's happening on the other side of the earth. We don't think about what's happening in the next town over. Our world is our own experience. But God's saying, no, there's so much more than that. He's essentially broadening Job's horizons with every new animal he mentions. He's saying, you know, Job, um, the world is not just your life. There are millions of people. There are tons of animals. And I provide for each one. Not only do I provide for the bird, but, a bird, but another animal had to die to provide for that bird. There's a place for suffering in this even. God provides prey for the hunter. And that also means killing the prey. And so there's a place for suffering even in God's world, but there's a larger picture, there's a larger system that none of us sees or cares about that God not only sees, but actively maintains. And so essentially another aspect of, you can't do my job. Even if I gave you all of the power that I had and say, let her rip, Job, you actually just don't have the mental capacity to even think about all the things that I do. But of course I made a mistake in your case. No. And so he talks about young lions. In 39, he says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth or do you observe the calving of does? Can you fulfill the months? Can you number the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they give birth? when they crouch and bring forth their offspring and deliver their young and their young ones become strong, they grow up in the open, they do not go out and return to them. He says, Job, I know when the mountain goats give birth and I know how long they live. You think I don't know your sufferings? You think I missed something in your case? And he goes down with each new animal. And I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit further down. I'm going to talk to you about verse 13, starting in verse 13. He says, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but, they are, but are they pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild beast may trample them. 
She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom, and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. And the thing that I want you to think about there is that God's going through a list of animals and he's saying, look how awesome these animals are. And he's giving himself glory by what he's made. And one of the things God actively brags about is what he didn't give something. He says, look at the ostrich. It's an idiot. You know who made it an idiot? Me. You know who could have given it wisdom? Me. But I didn't. Because wisdom is not only mine to give, wisdom is mine to withhold. And God actively brags about the fact that it's in with completely within his control whether he gives good or whether he gives bad. And that you can see that just by looking at animals. That you can look at an animal and say, that animal's smart, that animal's dumb. God could have made them both smart. But he made that one an idiot. And Job, earlier on in Job, he says, are we going to accept good from the Lord and not bad? No. And he eventually moves away from that over the course of the conversation. But God even brings him back to that. And God reminds him, I give good to animals and I withhold good from animals. And I have the exact same right to give good to you or to withhold good from you. That is my right as creator. I don't answer to you. In the same way that I make the ostrich a fool, I can let you suffer. In the same way that I gave you riches, I can take them away. I don't owe you anything. I don't know the animals anything. And just like I made them, I made you. Your position before me is not different than an ostrich, except for how I make it different. And so he goes on. That's what he says about the ostrich, but I can't not read verse 19 to 25. This is literally amazing. He says, do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Or do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons and he laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. And when the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar and the thunder of captains and the shouting. God looks at horses and he says, dude, horses are epic. Horses are muscular. Horses are fearless. They are courageous. Horses are the mightiest part of war. I made those. I'm pretty cool. Now take that awesome horse and put a spear on its forehead. And I'm not saying that unicorns are the most manly creature ever imagined. I'm just saying that they're pretty manly. Moving on. Okay, so in verse 26, he says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, and his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. God looks at birds, and he says, I designed those. And here's the thing that I want you to think about. Like, let's talk about birds. God designed their hollow bones. He shaped their bodies so that they could fly. He gave them beautiful feathers. 
And something that is important to see is that God, when he is trying to brag and he's trying to make himself look as epic as possible, he says, look at the animals that I made. Look at the stars that I made. Look at the earth that I made. Look at the desert wastelands that I water. Look at the lightning bolts. Look at the hail. Look at all of the things that I made that I designed in my wisdom. One of the main sources of God's glory is God's creation, and that is one of the reasons that it is such an egregious evil to look at all of that and say, man, isn't it great that that just magically appeared by chance? Like, let's just talk about the Mona Lisa for a second. Now, I, may, I know that some of you may think that Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa and that it was an excellent just march forward in painting and the use of intricate backgrounds even. And I know that you think that one of the most beautiful and amazing paintings ever created was painted by a person. <laughs> but that's just because you're, uh, you're undeveloped and you have dumb religious minds that assume that things had to be created by people but let me tell you how the mona lisa actually got there someone got a bunch of wood and then they got some rocks and leaves and and some carcasses and just a bunch of random stuff and they wrapped it in a bag and then they set it there and then they took three pieces of dynamite and they set it right next to that bag of wood and whatnot and then when it exploded the wood just happened to put go into exactly the right shapes to make a canvas and then what happened to land exactly on that canvas was all of the right pigments that came out of the carcasses and the leaves and the plants and everything else and it just so so perfectly arranged itself to be the consistency of paint and landed just so on the canvas without destroying it to put the image of a woman on there with an intricate background and clothing of the specific time period that Leonardo da Vinci happened to be from Um, and it just kind of appeared and after that canvas was perfectly made just by chance and all of the pigments pulled out of everything else just by chance then the remaining wood left over was perfectly sheared into little rectangles that were bolted together by some metal that happened to be in there too so that it could be on a firm canvas. Now, if I said that to you, you'd say, yeah, John, you're an idiot. But when some idiot comes up to me and says, oh yeah, all of the universe and all of the life in the universe and all of the eagles and birds and horses and cows and ostriches and people And all of the things that are infinitely more complicated than something as stupid as the Mona Lisa, those came around by chance. Something blew up in just the right way, and the flip of a coin landed heads and tails in exactly the right times for everything that you see to just kind of spontaneously develop. Ridiculous. And God actively derives glory from his work as creator and his work as designer and his work as artist. And it is a sin to look at what God has made and say, random chance. It'd be like if your dad gave you a car and you said, man, am I glad that the universe just kind of spontaneously generated a car here for me to drive. It's inappreciative. And Romans 1 looks at people 
that look at creation and can convince themselves that God didn't make it and it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That it is so brutally obvious that to deny it is actively sinful and rebellious. God is glorified by his work as creator and we would do well to remember that. Not just so that we can give him appropriate glory, but so that we can recognize how damaging it is to ignore what God has made and what he has said about it. So, God talks about all of those things. And then in verse, sorry, chapter 40, God says to Job, Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who answer, who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered, and the Lord, uh, answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And so here's the issue. That's not repentant. Job rightly recognizes that he is not equipped to answer back to God. But this is like when someone says, you're right, I'm wrong, whatever, and they just move on. Job is not actually having a heart of repentance here. Job just recognizes he has nothing to say. And God responds in verse 6, and it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And so God responds to what Job says, and he says, Not good enough. Job's not repentant, and God says, Are you putting me in the wrong? Do you think you have nothing to repent for here? Let's try again. I'm going to give you a bit more. And then God goes into the description of behemoth and leviathan. But before he goes into those, there's one more thing we need to notice. He says, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor, implied like I do. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look at this, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge you and that your own right hand can save you. So God says, Job, get on my level. But here's the thing I want you to notice. When God is bragging and he's essentially putting together the things that make him look as baller as possible. He says, can you bring the prideful low like I can? Can you tread the wicked under you like I can? So here's the quick application we're gonna get out of that. If one of the things God actively brags about is the way that he destroys prideful people, what is something that you never want to be? What do you think? Sinful, more specifically? A prideful person. A prideful person. Humility is a very valuable thing to have, and pride is a very good thing to guard against because God actively prides himself in destroying prideful people. I, I do not want to put myself in the category of people that when God wants to show off, he destroys. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to steer clear of that one, man. I think that that would be a wise choice to make. <laughs> Moving on. So then he talks about behemoth, and he says, Behold, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox, and behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. So essentially, God describes this animal, and behemoth is essentially the word for cattle, 
But in Hebrew, when you're talking about one thing and you want to be like the greatest of those things, you take the word and you make it plural. So the Hebrew word is behemah, but then the plural of that is behemot. So behema, behemoth. So it's multiple. So it'd be like if I said, man, cows, to refer to the greatest of all cows. And essentially, that's also how the Bible refers to God. There's a word for God, and then the way that they refer to capital G God is by saying gods. But it still is a single entity. So that's what that is. But he's describing this animal. And first of all, this is a real animal. God's been going through describing real animal after real animal after real animal. As real as the horse is, behemoth is real. And yet, we don't really see things that look like behemoth. One of the things that people will say is like behemoth is a hippo, which I mean, hey, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you've seen hippos that swing around their tail like a cedar, but I haven't. Um, so I'm gonna say that that's probably a hard pass. But personally, what I think it is, is a brachiosaurus, <laughs> which is a very large dinosaur that is herbivorous as Job describes the behemoth to be. And it would make sense because this isn't happening too long after the Noahic flood given by Job's lifespan, which is massive. Uh, so a brachiosaurus, I'm guessing that's what it is because it walks through rivers that are turbulent and doesn't have any fear, has a tail like a cedar, is really, really strong and has scales and eats plants. So brachiosaurus, that's what I'm gonna submit to you is what this is. Also, Leviathan, significantly cooler than the behemoth. Among other things, Leviathan, we're not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time. Among other things, Leviathan is a water creature. Uh, Leviathan is extremely hostile and dangerous, very combative. It has terrifying teeth. It has shield-like scales. It breathes fire. Um, reread that last one. And then, did I mention that it breathes fire? Holy cow, is that cool. In fact, I'm actually going to find those verses because I might as well. In case you're wondering if Leviathan breathes fire. Um, 18 of uh, 41. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, and sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. So, Leviathan breathes fire. That's pretty epic. Um... Leviathan is a sea creature with a mighty neck, mighty jaw, and very difficult to tame. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about with the God talking about making Leviathan, but we don't have time. So people will say, oh, this must have been a mythological creature because we obviously don't see animals like that. No, this is along, among a list of a bunch of things that are actual creatures. So God actually made Leviathan, which means that this is an animal that once existed. Other people will say, oh, it was a crocodile. I was going to say, man, I don't see many crocodiles that breathe fire. And also, crocodiles are not quite as scary as Job 41 makes them out to be. Like, when you read the description of the horse, and you're like, oh yeah, it runs into javelins, and it snorts at danger, and it jumps like a locust. All of those are kind of like, well, yeah, you look at a horse, that's roughly what happens. Um, <laughs> crocodiles don't breathe fire. Um, yeah, so I'm going to submit to you that, <laughs> the, that it is a plesiosaurus. So a, a Mauisaurus is a 26-foot-long plesiosaurus, and so we've got some really big ones. And I'm just going to submit to you that the plesiosaurus fits the description in Job 41 pretty well. Am I saying... Yes? He fire? Um, yeah. So apparently, according to Job 41, the plesiosaurus would have breathed fire, assuming that my guess is right. Yeah? Could it have breathed fire underwater? 
Probably. It talks about boiling the water. So I'm not saying that Brehemoth and Leviathan absolutely were the Brachiosaurus and the Plesiosaurus. I'm just saying that they definitely weren't a hippo and a crocodile, <laughs> and that these creatures that we have the bones of, they seem to match the description. Yeah? I'm going to say that it's blue because I just like theory crafting that it's blue. Do I have any reason to think that? Absolutely not. But I like imagining blue ones. Yes. I think it's blue to match the ocean. I'm down. Or red. I'm into it. So anyways, all that to say, these are actual creatures that are radically powerful, the most powerful creatures that God could basically think of. And here's the thing that the point that God is making. What is more powerful than the most powerful creature you have ever seen? The one who made that powerful creature the one that that powerful creature relies on the strength for. So God's looking at Job and he's again looking at his creation and saying, I'm cooler than the coolest thing that exists because I had to make that cool thing. You might be, not be strong enough to stand against the Leviathan, but I am because I made the thing. And so after, Job fin after God finishes going off about Behemoth and Leviathan, then Job answered the Lord in, in chapter 42, and he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Basically, you have the right to do whatever you want. You have the power to do whatever you want. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful me, for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And there's the response that Job should have made, frankly, before God started talking, but also back in chapter 40. So Job repents, and he repents well. And here's the thing. A lot of people will say that like the happy ending of Job is Job getting all of his stuff back. No, no, no. The happy ending of Job is, I, have heard, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. At the end of Job, what, got, what Job got for all of his suffering is that he got to speak to God. That's pretty baller. Now, here's the thing. God's not done with Job's friends either. So after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job got four chapters of poetry. Eliphaz and his friends are getting, I'm mad at you, <laughs> offer sacrifice. <laughs> And he says, um, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Here's the thing that is significant. Job's friends were not doing any sort of sinful behavior with Job except for necessarily their harshness in the way they spoke. Job's friend's sin was having bad theology. They spoke inaccurately about the things that were true of God, and they did it at a time when they didn't have the entire Bible. So something that's significant. You're actually responsible to believe the right thing. In the Bible, whenever it talks about people who have bad theology, it attributes that bad theology to two things. Thing number one, ignorance. In Hebrews, as well as in 2 Peter, you have, them, you have the author specifically saying, the reason that you don't know this is because you haven't read. So 2 Peter says, um, when speaking about the difficult things of Paul, something that was quoted in the Sunday sermon, um, some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So there are two categories of people. One, the ignorant. The second one, 
are the immoral. So, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 talks about people who have seared consciences, who teach the doctrines of demons sinfully, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So when God refers to anyone who has bad theology, he attributes it to either not knowing the Bible well enough or actively sinning in ignoring what the Bible says. The Bible does not present itself as something that's so confusing that two people can have completely different interpretations and both of those are acceptable. God says, I've spoken clearly, and if you don't interpret what I've said to mean what I said, then you're sinning. And so it's really easy to say that and be like, oh, those sinners over there who have different theology than me. But the interpretation and the application of that is, it really matters that you know what the Bible says. Because when God looks at what you believe, or I could say when God looks at what I believe, He's going to have you actively repent for the theological mistakes that you made, for your misinterpretations. It's not an amoral thing. And so that's been the thing that guides my own interpretation of the Bible, is this isn't one interpretation among money. This isn't an acceptable view to have. If I'm wrong, I'm in sin. And that means I need to be really careful about being right. And so for each of you guys, you need to approach the Bible with that same level of care. Because Job's friends were wrong about a point of really nuanced high theology. And then God said, offer sacrifices so that I don't judge you. So we also need to be careful. Last thing, we're going to round off the story in verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then all came to him. Uh, and then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Again, God is the one who takes credit for everything that happened to Job. God doesn't pawn that off on Satan. God allowed it to happen. And so God is the one who caused that suffering to happen to Job. He was sovereign in that situation. And it's important for us to remember, when I suffer, God's letting that happen. God's got control over it, and that means that even while I'm in it, God can help me. Because it's not out of it, outside of his control that this happened. Verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemiah, Jemimah, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karanahapuch. That's, that's an interesting one. So here's the thing that's also significant. And this is my last little thought that comes out of the book of Job. It gives you the daughter's names. It does not give you the son's names. That's really weird. Here's, you ready for the next weird thing? Verse 15. And in all the land were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Job actively gives his daughters an inheritance along with his brothers, her bro their brothers. Super weird, not common. One of the things that's significant, people will often look at the Bible and say, oh, God's a sexist. The Bible is so sexist and outdated. We know better than that now. And it's like, no, the Bible was progressive before being progressive was a thing. The Bible absolutely does not devalue women as like a lesser sex. No. <laughs> Even as early as the very first book ever recorded in the Bible, you've got the righteous man giving his daughters an equivalent, an, an inheritance among their brothers. That's just an interesting thing in there. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. 
And that's the story of Job. It's the story of a man who suffered, not because he was unrighteous. And from that, we learn that not every suffering situation is God judging sin. And then we see the conversation between Job and his friends. We learn a lot of things about wisdom and foolishness. And then at the end, we see that God is glorious. And here's the main application that I want you to get from this. I could have given you like the content of a lesson, given you like point one, point two, point three, But ultimately, we're going to spend our lives and spend our eternities praising God. And so I wanted the application of tonight to be, let's look at God brag about himself. And let's just think about how cool he is. Because we're going to be doing that for a long time. And honestly, that's one of the sweetest parts of the Bible. And I love the sections where God is bragging about himself. Because it's just cool. But with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out. All right. Lord, thank you for the book of Job. I find that the book of Job addresses so little, and yet it comes up so often. And it's because the things that the book of Job addresses are so rampant. Lord, thinking about suffering, thinking about why suffering happens, but also thinking about you and thinking about our place before you. You are God and we are not, and you don't answer to us. You are not in our courtroom, and there is no person on this planet that is going to place you in their courtroom, but rather every person on this planet is going to wind up in yours. I pray that you would help us to remember who we are and who you are and the relationship between the two. But Lord, I pray that you would also just help us to enjoy and see your glory in creation and in everything else. I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.